Welcome to the Hope United Church Podcast. We are one church with two locations. For video live streams of our services and more information, please visit www.hopeunited.org.uk. on to the book of Acts and we're in chapter one towards this greatest opener, the, the, the day of Pentecost, which comes next Sunday in our calendar. Uh, doesn't officially come, you know, they're not going to be tongues of fire next week. Uh, well, know where we are anyway. Uh, and it's the beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ, the book of Acts. Up to this point, the church has not yet started. It's just the apostles and some core believers, 120. So Jesus was really successful in three years of his ministry. He was able to take it up to 120 uh, truly committed and believing people, uh, which have no clue or comprehend even still about Pentecost and what's coming. And last week we spoke about Christ carried the Holy Spirit as fully man to fulfill, fully man, fully God, to fulfill the work of his ministry. However, it was now going to be transferred and given to the apostles for them to fulfill the ministry. And Jesus promises them his helper, the Holy Spirit, Jesus in them. And it's a gift for all believers. We spoke about that last week. Not one passed on from them who have a special anointing. Uh, again, I went into that in detail last week. If you uh, want to go back and have a listen to that, if you haven't already, but... At the start, it had to be transferred. It had to be transferred at an event because the Holy Spirit rested upon Christ and then it was going to be transferred to rest upon the people, the world that now these men carry the message of the gospel to declare Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And it, it couldn't be a wee backdoor event because these men were going to be then carrying this mantle, if you like, this, this, this message. So it had, to be, it had to be like an event. They, uh, they had all the training. They had most of the lessons, as of course they're learning and being sanctified as they go, but they did not have, at this point, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why they needed Pentecost. Uh, we do not, we do not need Pentecost. We can celebrate it as an event and look back at it in history as a, a great event in the beginning of the church. And as we get next week, we'll get into some great detail about Pentecost and what, what it meant and what happened and what the actual subsequent events that happened at that time and how they all lined up with Scripture, Old Testament, and fulfilled prophecy from Old Testament Scripture. And we'll get into that in detail. And if you want to read some of that, read Leviticus 28 to 33. It tells you all about Pentecost and what it really means. No, and it tells you all about the feast, the Jewish feasts, uh, and everything that goes with it. Uh, but the foundation has been set, the early days now, the foundation has been set. It says in Ephesians, that the foundation of the church was, was founded and grounded on the apostles. So we don't need to set the foundation again. Uh, therefore, we do not need transference. It comes when we believe in full. Let me add, we don't get a percentage. And this is why people say, well, we still need Pentecost because we still need this. That's like to say, okay, that when we receive, because some people say, yeah, you receive, I believe you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. But we still need Pentecost because we still need the Holy Spirit again. And that's like saying that Jesus or Jesus and God, the Trinity, only gave you a part of the Holy Spirit when you get saved. And then I know it doesn't make sense, doesn't it? No. Then there would need to be another portion that was given. As if he can split that up. Jesus can't split himself up, you know, you can't be a wee bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. So you can't get a port. So when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit fully. Fully you receive the Holy Spirit. You don't receive, receive a portion of it and there's another section of it that comes later. Uh, and we need an event to get more of the Trinity because Jesus gave us a part of He gave us him. He's descended to the Father. We've got the Father, the Father, Son and Holy Ghost. But we've got the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost. We've only got a part of the Holy Ghost. No, the other part will come probably at another event somewhere down the line. So that's why it's complete. And even when you think about it that way, sometimes you don't even know to go deep. Sometimes you just need to go, why would Jesus be able to break himself up and give you a part of him? No, no, God, the Trinity. 
next week is Pentecost this season. We'll get into that and we so we'll get into that in detail as I say. And uh, so as we close last week with Jesus ascending, that's what we closed last week. Uh, nine, ten days before Pentecost, that Jesus ascended in front of the apostles. He had walked among them, not continually, but after his resurrection, he'd walked among them and taught them and taught them his ways and taught them about the kingdom and the message. And he'd done that for 40 days. And uh, and it would be easy just to go blase, right? We're moving on to verse 12, because that took us to verse 11. And Acts, we go, well, we're on to verse 12 now. Uh, um, but it'd be easy and blase just to go to verse 12. And no can I highlight that again, that the, the resurrected Christ, who walked amongst the people, and they were seen by countless people, sometimes the apostles on different occasions, the crowd on different occasions, one time by 500 people, uh, and here he is right in front of them, ascending to heaven, as the apostles stood amongst the 120, and they stood and watched uh, let me just read out verse 8 to 11 again in Acts 1. But you shall receive, this is Jesus, just this is his closing words. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while he, they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of the sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Now, the reason I don't want to just go into verse 12 is and just go right in there is because, which is the next verse where we left off, is because it's so important that we don't just see this as just something that you just pass by and as we move on to the next thing. We have to understand what the apostles just, what, are you understanding what they just witnessed there? The Son of Man, God, getting carried up on a cloud while they stood and gazed. And see Christ being taken up. He finishes his sentence to Samaria, to this, to that, and to the ends of the earth. Cloud. It's like, uh, it's astounding. <laughs> it means, uh, ataneso is the Greek word that, for what they've done. It says, it says that they, had, they were intently and steadfastly staring, but also with complete focus, you can imagine. I mean, they have no clue what's coming here. Like they were both in awe. So there is a standing, they're in awe. Oh, jaw dropped, eyes gazing. They're both in awe. And at the same time, almost in mourning. They're mourning, they're saying, where is he going? They're, 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 they're overwhelmed with the whole thing. These men walk with Jesus, dine with Jesus, watched him perform miracles, seen him die, then seen him resurrected, walked with the resurrected Christ, spoke to the resurrected Christ, and after 40 days, he's standing in a mountain at the side of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, Mount Olivet, which is just one of the mountains there. It's actually just a big hill. He's standing there in a secluded part of the mountain. And then as he finishes his speech and he finishes instruction, <laughs> he's elevated to the heavens. How, can you imagine what that must have, you can't even imagine what that must have been like. And I didn't want to just move on without just kind of having a pause and thinking about that. As he finished the sentence, he was lifted up into the heaven from their very eyes. Well, two angels, so if it doesn't get more astounding, two angels appeared and stood side by side and then said to them, why stare? Why are you glaring? Meaning, why do you think uh, it's a loss? No, because in amongst that, they're not. And they think it's a loss. Why do you think it's a loss? Why are you looking in a way that you're losing something? Or in some way, and then they say, the way he went is, is the way he'll come back. But this time in all his glory. And none of us know when. None of us know when. Oh, none of us know when. 
No, you'll hear people saying, you know, some false teachers and different stuff. The, 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 some of them, some of them have, have got the dates wrong about a hundred times. Yeah. Think about that. Jesus coming back, descending in heaven in all his glory. Jesus finished work. Was about to become the starting work of the believers and the called and the elect to start the ultimate. And I know this can seem like a word that gets used, but, but really this is what it is. It's a rescue mission until Jesus comes back. Really, that's what it is. And we don't know when it'll be. Could it be in our lifetime? Could be. I've no idea, and neither do you, but we, we ought to live in a sense as if he is. That's for sure. Okay, and I just wanted to say that because see as we move on here into verse 12, which we'll go to now, and as I was studying, I thought, right, this is great. I'm going to get from verse 12 to verse 26. Now, any that know, some of you have just laughed there. And I, heard, I never heard it, but I felt it. Uh, uh, I was going to get from verse 12 to 26, which would mean that I would need to get through 14 verses. And I was doing really, really well uh, for the first four hours. And then it's just the... the uh, so I couldn't get by verse 14. Uh, so I go to verse 14. I go as far as... So I've got two verses here. So we're going to put back Pentecost for a month or something. We get through, no, I'm joking. Uh, I may need to, if I can touch on it at the end, if I've got time, which I doubt I will, but if I can't, I may just share something uh, on Instagram or online about the, the the last part before we get to Pentecost at the start of chapter two, where Pope Peter stands and then they select Matthias and uh, things like that, Matthias. And it's pretty astounding, all that stuff in itself, but hence they say, as I studied... Uh, I couldn't seem to get by this part. But then it says, okay, so let's move on anyway. Then they returned. It's almost like, so you can't just say it like that. Then they returned from to Jerusalem, from the mount called Olivet. But this is out, just outside the outskirts of Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been about, Jerusalem's about 200 metres, if any have been. Jerusalem's about 200 metres above sea level and Mount Olivet would be about 400. So, it's not really a mountain, it's a large hill and they would have been on this secluded spot called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem. A Sabbath day's journey. Christ told them to wait in Jerusalem, didn't he, until the Holy Spirit came. Uh, and this Mount Olives, and Mount Olives, are, Mount Olivet, a part of those range of mountains or hills, was near Bethany, just a secluded spot, just not far from Jerusalem. And it says it was a Sabbath journey uh, away and I'm wondering, maybe somebody's going be thinking, what does that mean? It, it, it means it was under a mile away. That's what it means. It was under a mile. Uh, uh, the reason we, we cannot understand that, you're saying, how do you know it's under a mile? We know that during the Sabbath, the rabbinic law would, would have these laws that you couldn't work on the Sabbath. So they would define everything that seemed like work. One of them being how far you were allowed to walk. And where they decided how far you were allowed to walk is, <laughs> is they look back to the Old Testament, uh, which they did for much of the stuff. And uh, when Moses was in the wilderness, uh, in the tents that they would live in the wilderness, and they would measure it roughly from the furthest tent away from the temple where they would worship. And the furthest tent away was 2,000 cubits. That's what they've come up with. It doesn't say exactly that, but that's roughly how they've measured it, which is under a mile. Two, a cubit's here, a cubit's from here to here. So 2,000 of them walking. That, you were not allowed to walk any further. 2002, broke the law. So you were allowed to, li imagine living like that. Uh, but you were allowed to walk up to that. So basically when it says a Sabbath journey, it means the, level, the, the distance that you would be able to walk on the Sabbath without breaking the law, which tells us how far they were away from Jerusalem, which is under a mile away. But the, the point I'm making is, <laughs> is that, uh, think what that walk back would have been like. So it's a, a Sabbath journey, so it's under a mile, okay? They were being walking away, so it takes 15, 20 minutes if you're no running which they wouldn't be running, and they're walking back. And just as I read this, I'm just thinking, what was that like? What, what would that must be like? Just be like? I don't know if they just walked with their jaw dropped or just went, what was that we just seen there? What was that? Uh, but it must have been the most unreal walk in history. Think about it. Can you remember your first 
walk anywhere after you get saved. From where you get saved to the next place you were going after you get saved, usually tell somebody that you get saved and they need Jesus and you just become all Jesus on them, right? So whatever it is, but it's that, that walk. You know, it's maybe that walk that you walked an hour back home or you leave church. You maybe know what it is. Or imagine what that was like, but they had just seen God ascend. What that walk must have been like. Uh, imagine what was going through their minds. I, I, I don't know, but that's the, kind of, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night, just dreaming and thinking and being in awe. You know, well, you're sleeping. I'm, I'm up at night thinking, I wonder, and I'm not going to add anything because I've not got a clue what they were doing. I just know it's pretty astounding. And then it says in verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. This would have been right in the, within the walls of Jerusalem. It says they went into the upper room. So they arrived, they get into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, he mentions all the apostles. Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. This upper room may well have been the room where Jesus spent his last supper. Many believe that was the room they went to. It may well have been the home, and I think many people believe this. This is kind of malignant. Uh, it may well have been the home of Mary, John Mark's mother. Because it says in Acts 12, 12, that uh, they would meet at John Mark's mother's house and pray. Uh, so it's probably that, but look, I don't know. You keep asking me. I don't know where it was. I know it's an upper room in the centre of Jerusalem, but I also know it's a big house because the loft, the upper room would be the loft. And what they would normally do is, and the Jews would often, the Jews would, they would make that upper room a prayer room. It would also be a room where maybe the women would stay and the maids would live. That would be another place they would live. But anyway, this upper room is able to hold 120 people. Uh, so it's a pretty, it's going to be a big house, it's got a big loft, uh, and they would meet there, but, but I'm, we're not sure, but we know it was an upper room in a, uh, in, in a place inside the walls of Jerusalem uh, where they would reside. And then Luke lists the, the 11 apostles, excluding, of course, Judas. And I would have loved to, but I, I, I don't know the time to get into verse 15 onwards where it talks about reinstating or bringing in another and replace of Judas, and it's 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 actually a heartbreaking uh, few verses, and I may just speak about them uh, before next week and just give you a heads up. But it's a heartbreaking thing because he what happened to Judas and uh, what became him, uh, and it gets into that. But anyway. Uh, Luke then lists, as they say, that the eleven apostles out with Judas, and then verse fourteen. This is this is an amazing verse. These all continued with one accord, so that would have been all the apostles, plus the 120. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication uh, with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Some of your translations will be different if you get the ESV or the NASB. I'll say devotion or supplication with uh, intense, intently. Uh, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they continued with one accord. And look, it said, and look, it says at the end of Luke in verse 24 that, that they would have divided because he says they would pray in the upper room and then they would go to the temple and pray continually. So this is what they've done for the next eight, nine days. They, and there seems to be something that's changed here because they seem to no longer be frightened. They seem to no longer be frightened or hiding. And John MacArthur says, they must have gained a sense of courage due to the time they spent with the risen Lord. For me, I would add to that, uh, the, the, what, what Dr. MacArthur says, and for me, I would add that seeing Jesus ascend, for me, would have been maybe even a greater encouragement or at least equal encouragement anyway. Uh, the others who would be there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus' half-brothers who are now believers, just. I mean, isn't that astounding? Just. After what they witnessed of the resurrection, they become believers. That's how long it took. That's how long it took. They walked with Jesus for three years with the mother. Right, you, are, you can imagine that, and I don't mean to be like, right, you boys, you're coming with me, I'm, we're following Jesus. Oh, none of them believed. And they followed Jesus for three years, and none of them believed. But they believe now. 
That's how long it took. There's a wee sidestep here and I don't want to get into it, but I just think it's beautiful in a sense. And before I get into this, it might bring a bit of balance. Um, I, I, can, I love that Mary never influenced him or couldn't influence him. She knew who he was, but she needed a saviour as well. And, and she was never able to quite influence her sons to, this is no your brother. <laughs> Uh, so she carried kind of that in her heart, and there's a beauty in that, I think. Uh, but it took the apostle, it took Jesus, his brothers, half brother being James. James, and the book, one of them being James, Joseph, being others, and other names. Uh, other names, of course, I've all got names. Uh, James, in the book of James, that's Jesus, his half brother. Jesus, his half, obviously, it's his half brother because they've got the same mother, but they've got a different father. Uh, uh, that's how long it took the apostles. That's how long it took Jesus' his brothers after his resurrection and now they're believing. Don't you think that's beautiful in a sense? Incidentally, as we say, James is his brother. He's the guy that wrote. And also as well, as just, just an offshoot, James, James Jesus' his half-brother, became the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. There's something beautiful about that as well. Mary Magdalene was there, the mother of James and John would have been there. Uh, maybe the apostle's wife, I heard somebody saying in... The Wycliffe, maybe the apostle's wife, I, I don't know. It doesn't say anything. Oh, look, I don't know. Right. They were there. There were 120 there in these. However, what is clear here, and this is important, Mary, the mother of Jesus, after she's mentioned here, she is never mentioned in God's word again. She's never mentioned directly again. No in Acts, no in any of the epistles, no authority whatsoever. It's the last time her name's mentioned. A devout woman she was, but a devout woman she is only. And I say this, and I don't say this to have a go at my, my Catholic friends or anything like that. It's not them. I, I, I say this to that, that, that they would understand and worship Jesus alone, and they wouldn't need to go through uh, the word plus works plus traditions. Which means that the word plus works plus traditions means the traditions of men. So it really means men, because if you, you need to get through man anyway, because the traditions become the be-all and end-all almost. Interesting, we have, I've, listen to here, we haven't even got to the start of the church. So the church has not started yet, it's not been established, the Holy Spirit's not came, and Mary is not mentioned again. And the church hasn't even started yet. It says in Luke 11, let me just add, Luke 11, 27, 28, just to highlight this. And it happened as he spoke, talking about Jesus, these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Which here Jesus his answer here? More than that, I'll tell you something that's more important than who birthed me. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I think this highlights this. Eh? Now what Jesus says is, is what's more blessed than the womb that carried me is the person that lives by the word. This isn't he saying Mary didn't. In fact, I believe he's saying she did. But he is saying all who do are blessed. And if she bore me but didn't, a dear, she's nothing more than that. If we could somehow gain blessing or favour, listen to this, if we could somehow, as I appeal to my, my, my Catholic friends here, if we could somehow gain blessing or favour or entry into heaven or access to God through her, don't you think before the foundation of the church that we would have heard something? Don't you think we would at least have some sort of empowerment or instruction here? Surely in the 40 days, even if it wasn't the first three years, surely in the 40 days before Jesus ascended, if, if it was so essential that we could get to heaven through Mary or if we could somehow get to God through Mary, don't you think that there would be some instruction here? And don't you think that she would maybe be mentioned after the foundation of the church? Surely in these 40 days of Christ's resurrection or in the three years we would have got something. And no, Mary was in the upper room. Goodbye. Mary was in the upper room that day. That's it, Mary. Never to be mentioned again. 
So where would that have to come from? Because it never came from the Gospels and it certainly hasn't came on half a chapter of the Acts and it's never mentioned again. If you ever want to study, and let me just say, see if you ever want to study this more. And I was reminded as I was looking at this that I read a book years ago, a good few years ago, and it's by a man called Alexander Hislop. Yes, he's Scottish. He's from Arbroath. Uh, he's actually from Duns, that place down near Haddington. Some amount of men of God for that area. Uh, but his name is Alexander Hislop, and he's a Scot he was a Scottish minister in the 19th century from Arbroath. And he wrote a book called The Two Babylons. That's what it's called. You can still get it. Some people will call it a classic. Uh, it's called The Two Babylons. And he goes right back into the history, back to the Tower of Babel and Nimrod and Nimrod's wife. And he explains how Mary's goddess-like status stems from that paganism back, way back to the Tower of Babel. Even the Roman Catholic cross that you see is, uh, is very symbol of, symbolic of that time, way back to Nimrod. Rod, so uh, so th maybe that's a book, it's called The Two Babylons, have a look at it, it may be a good thing for you to read if you're sharing your faith or something with your Catholic friends or uh, your family or something, anyway I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying this to mock but I do say it that they would, they would be set free from scripture plus works plus traditions, okay they all continued with one accord, one spirit and supplication, and this is an amazing word here. They all continued with one accord. That'll say in, I think, the NASB and the ESV. They all continued with one accord, one spirit and supplication. And there's a word here that it was, and it's humothamadon. Humothamadon is a Greek word that's, and this is what makes it astounding. And this is why I get so stuck in this, because this will be where I'll just bring this in. Homathomadon uh, is, is, is a Greek word that can't be translated to any other language. It's uniquely a Greek word, but it's uniquely, it uniquely describes only one thing. And, and, and it really describes, it's, it's a love, uh, it's, a, it's a total, well, I'll say it a bit better, right? No other word has it in its language. It's unique to Greek. And what it means is it's unique to united believers in the Lord. That's how unique this word is. It means to rush along or to be driven along in unison. Humathamadon. To be totally harmoniously joined without a single break or split or formation. Uh, almost like, I heard it explain like this, it's almost like a symphony orchestra all playing together to make the sound so sweet that it's heavenly. It's, it's, it's what makes it so breathtaking is that it's, it's Christ himself that binds us as believers together in harmony. And while these people are in the upper room, they have this, Madon, they have this unbelievable, unique, one-of-a-kind unity that, that you can't find anywhere else in life. You know that yourself. You've never found it anywhere else in life. Whatever you've done, you've done exciting things. Recall the times when you, as a body of believers, you've just come together. It's indescribable. It's Hamatha Madonna. It is. It's, it's totally unique to anything that you've ever experienced in your life. And it's when believers come together with one heart and one purpose and one accord. And they've got this amazing unity as they praise God and they sing to Christ. And it's like, it's, it's so powerful, it's jaw-dropping. It's what makes the church irresistible. Uh, it puts me in mind the Ephesians, and it puts me in mind the all the Ephesians that we've been studying. But Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, talking about Paul, beseech you to walk worthy of your calling, with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, bearing with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity in the spirit, to keep the homothamadon, to keep the unity in the spirit of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. I believe no other thing in the planet can touch that. 
It can't even get close to it. It can't even get near it when it's formed. A church that has this, it's the church that knows Christ and the church that worships him and him alone. It's, as I study this and I think about where God's taking us as a church, oh, it'd be a church that's just like that. Oh, it'd be like, the whole church would just be that. We're one body, one spirit. This, this unique bond and unitedness that we have that the world can't duplicate because it can only happen when it's binded together and knowing who Christ is in each and every one of us that we have had a measure of his, his grace and then we all come together in unitedness in that. As one, no competing. Uh, it's only used 12 times here. This word is only used 12 times in the New Testament. It's only used 12 times in the Bible. And 11 of them, which is pretty astounding here, 11 of them is in the book of Acts in the early formation of the church. It's because that's when the church was at its strongest and best, when they had this, they had all things in common before other things came and distracted, before people had political agendas, before people had this, before we had stars and lights and smoke sheen. It was just a math of dawn. It was astounding. No, it's just found nowhere else other than in here in Acts and then one in Romans. It makes the church totally unshakable. The other thing that they did was that they totally devoted themselves. Supplication means devoted. In order to have that unshakable, and I have to say this is, in order to have that unshakable united spirit, we also need to devote ourselves. You cannot, you cannot have that united in one spirit without devotion. You break that personal devotion. Hamatha Madon starts to, it's not there anymore. This is why it's so important that it says that they devote himself. And even as you begin to Acts 2, it says they devoted themselves and, and God continually added to the numbers daily who were there. This is Hamatha Madon. Would you hear this? This is Hamatha Madon without the Holy Spirit. How much more powerful can we have it with? It's astounding. But it has to come first from personal devotion. Show me a church that is not united and I will show you people who are not devoted. I'll say again, show me a church that is not united and I will show you a people who are not devoted or even just a bunch of them. All were of one mind and one spirit devoted and this was without the Holy Spirit at this point. How much more do we have no wonder the church exploded with total united Hamatha Madon plus the Holy Spirit. It's astounding. You will see next week how it goes anyway. Let's quickly turn as I bring this into Nehemiah and look at the moment of the opposite or what happens. Okay, this is not necessarily Hamatha Madon because it's Old Testament, but I love the book of Nehemiah and watch what happens and watch what causes. And I want you just for the next couple of minutes, maybe wherever you're at in your life, I just want to appeal to you that there's maybe reasons and things have may happen to you that's took you away. And maybe that devotion's not there that's, uh, that you need to kind of realign yourself again. And I, I love the book of Nehemiah. Many of you will know that. I think it's one of the greatest leadership books and I've preached from it many, many times. It's an astounding book. Uh, but we're going to go in Nehemiah 4 and verse 6. Uh, read from verse 6. And here is, Nehemiah has been called. He was a cupbearer for the king Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and meaning he just to take a drink of the poison to, to see, if the, see if it was poison before he died. And he, he served diligently there, never wept, never cried, never moaned. And then, and, and then King Nebuchadnezzar gives him true favour and then he ends up opening the door for him to go and build God's house again. The people were scattered after the Babylonians. The people were scattered. They had no place to worship. And God then, his prophet Nehemiah says, you're going to be the guy that's going to unite the people again. Bring Old Testament Hamatha Madon to people and put them together and build your church. And they all come together. And what happens is, is you know what happens is that the, the enemy does not like that. And this is what happens. And so let's just go to Nehemiah 40, uh, start at verse 6. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For, would you hear this? For the people had 
a mind to work. Let me just translate. The people were of one accord and one spirit and one mind to serve God. They're building God's house and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. They're getting more united. They're in one mind, they're one devotion. And as they build God's house together in unison and unity, we are rush, as it says, that, that they words. No, we are Russian spirit and I don't mean Russian as in Moscow Russian, uh, and, a, and a unison. They have got one mind and one devotion. And what's starting to happen is they're starting to build a fortress. Now, I don't mean a fortress to keep them in. I mean a mighty fortress that will stop the enemy penetrating. And the more unity that you have and the more Hamathamadon you have, the more impenetrable you will be in order for the enemy to attack you. That's why we need a body of believers. That's why online church won't cut it. So one mind... And the devotion is there. They're devoted to one mind to build. And the enemy hates it. And there have been times in your life and there have been times in your journey and there may have been times in this season of lockdown where you've been united, but all of a sudden now that... The, 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 the walls have been starting to get built. You've been getting stronger in your faith. You've been getting stronger with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the enemy hates it and you need to know that. And then it says in verse 7, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. That's when the enemy gets angry. The enemy gets angry every single day that you get closer to unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The enemy gets angry. Yeah. Show me a person who doesn't have unity with his brothers and sisters in Christ and I'll show you somebody who's tossed to and throw with the enemy, with their mind. This is what happens when we have one mind. The gaps get filled, meaning that these gaps get filled. The fortress keeps out the enemy as it builds and it becomes an impenetrable fortress. Your mind gets stronger. Your emotions get stronger. Your heart gets stronger. Your everything become stronger in God and in Christ for us. And it's in those times that you may feel the full force of the enemy attack. It's in those times of ah, because the enemy's like, one more stone here, one more breakthrough, one more day of unity, one more day of coming together, one more day of this, one more day of devotion. Things are getting stronger and you're becoming more stable. As each brick gets laid, as each foundational stone, Christ being the key cornerstone, which the builders rejected. So as these stones, I'm, I'm just kind of going back and forward here with the new and old, but you get what I'm saying. And as these stones start getting stronger, you become less unstable. And the body becomes less unstable. And your mind becomes less unstable. But here it comes. Are you ready? Here it comes. Verse 8. And all of them conspired. This is all the different enemies. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create, which is this, confusion. An enemy tactic. Make you overthink. Make you second guess. Take your mind off building and make... You lose your place and poise and your position in the body to take you out amongst the laborers. The Hebrew word is toah. Toah is Hebrew. It means to wander or to be disturbed or to hinder. That's the enemy wants to do, to wander, to be disturbed or hinder. But more than that, it means, which you this? This is what the Hebrew means for that toah. It means... To start to error in your religious morals and values. Wow. Do you know what that means? To slip out of praying. To slip out of reading the word. To slip out of meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ. To slip out of accountability. To slip out of that. You start to error in the very things that kept you strong. The enemies now created stuff to stop you praying to stop you being united with your brothers in Christ, to become bickering, to, to, become, uh, to become bitter, and all the other things, to become weak. And that's what the enemy brings to our world, to make us stop, to, to stop Hamathamadon, 
to create confusion, to make you stop following your Christian values. You're now obsessing about what's in your life and around about your life than who he is in your life, i.e. Christ. Nehemiah then says, as the leader of the shepherd, no, the shepherd leader, which he has switched on, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, time's really gone, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. What is Nehemiah's answer? Listen to this. What is Nehemiah's answer to the attack of the enemy? He stay united and keep building. Press into God. Pray. Up the ante on your religious values. Up the ante in your prayer life. Spend more time in the Word. You start seeing that stuff and it's an attack and it's trying to take you away from the things that keep you strong and united in the Word. So we can get more obsessed about, we can get more obsessed about policies and politics than we do God's Word. And Nehemiah is saying, switch on, stay vigilant, Keep watch, watch and pray, as Jesus says, lest you fall into temptation. That's what he says to the apostles in the garden. It's a vital thing. The enemy wants to draw you away from your Christian values. If you are in a place at the moment where all you see is rubble and rubbish, or you've been took away by every wave or to or fro, I will guarantee that your prayer life, your studying, your unitedness with your brothers in Christ, your mind's not in line with the body or the line, uh, but your brothers and sisters, I'll guarantee that there's something else to took over your life. Guaranteed. Verse 10, then Judah said to the, and this is, this is the thing, even though Nehemiah's strong, but the enemy's got a grip of them a bit now. And it says in verse 10, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers are failing, which of us, for there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. There is so much rubbish that we've no got anymore. Hamatha Madon. There's so much rubbish that we don't have one spirit and one accord. We're not strong as a body anymore. We're no longer building the church of Jesus Christ, or in their case, the temple. Some have not shook it off. They are now gripped with weakness. This is the enemy tactic. What's happened? Well, here's the thing that's happened, and I really need to bring this in. All the same stones are there, okay? The enemy, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Amorites and Ashadites, hasn't he brought more stones? Okay? They've kept the same stones that was there to build the tabernacle. They've created confusion because now they're no longer, wait you they're no longer looking to the precious stones that can build God's house. They're now looking at them from their past mindset. They're now looking at them from the unrenewed mind. What they used to look at, they look beautiful. Nothing's changed. The same things there. God's words there. The same resources are there. But instead of looking at it as precious and powerful and food and fuel for your life, you know, look at it as a burden. All you can see now is your past. And what's happened is all these people are now, the, the enemies created confusion and now they're looking at how unworthy they are. They're now obsessing about somebody else's problem. They're now obsessing, what about rubble, dust? They're now obsessed. What used to be, pre what used to be beautiful, beautiful stones that they, they, they built God's kingdom with have turned and they look at it as rubbish and they look at it as rubble. The same stones. Instead of looking for the future, the stones now remind them of the past. Instead of them helping them build the future with God and a place of honour for God, their shame and their fear and their unrenewed self comes back and their unredeemed life comes back and starts to haunt them. They're now obsessing about what an enemy who's not of God is speaking to them about rather than what the man of God is saying. Sanbaya, Bala, the Amorites and the Ashadites have created confusion that the strength of the labourers are failing. I just, and this will be the war cry, I just can't. I'm not trying to belittle here. I'm trying to convict. I just can't. I've just not been in a great place and, you know, I'm doing that. Yeah, you've lost, you've lost your strength because you've been confused because the enemy has made you obsess about something more than Christ. They only see rubble and only see their old life. The enemy has forced them to put back on their unrenewed mind and process things only in a negative way. Have you ever noticed that? 
that when that starts to happen, you can only seem to process stuff in a negative way, that everything comes out you as a negative, rather than finding the good in the rubble. It's a classic enemy tactic. It says the strength of the labors are failing because there is too much rubbish. The strength and unity is failing. Oh. The strength and unity is failing because they don't, they're not staying focused. They're not devoted. The Hamatha Madon is no longer the sound, is no longer the Russian unison of harmony. It has been replaced with self-absorbed, self-obsessed pain. And in verse 11, it just tells you the enemy's purpose of it. And our adversary said, they will neither know nor see anything. See, this is what happens. They're not staying alert. Now you, and see when it says you'll neither know or see anything, now you don't even know it's the enemy that's doing it. You're convinced it's your neighbour, you're convinced it's your unruly son or unruly daughter, or you're convinced it's something else. You don't even understand it's the enemy anymore because you've, you're no longer, you've took what you were fighting powers and principalities and you've been back to fighting flesh and blood. Because why? Because you've not took every thought captive and lined it up with the word of God. And now you're in the wrong battle, in the wrong fight. Now it's, now it's Nicola Sturgeon's fault. Now it's Trump's fault. Now it's that. I'm just using that as an offset. I know you're like, oh, it's not him. It's no powers and principalities. It's, it's flesh and blood. It's, it's what the neighbour done to you. It's what he said. It's what that Christian, you've got a resentment. It's this, it's your boss. It's this, whatever it is. And our verse that he said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst. And here's the thing, now you see nothing. Now the enemy who you would see from a distance because of unitedness, because of united in purpose, because you were devoted to the word, you can't even see him when he's sitting next to you on the couch now. And he'll come into the midst and kill them and cause what? Here is that, here's the deal. To cause the work to cease. That's the enemy tactic. To cause the work of the church of Jesus Christ the unity of believers, the Hamathamadon, this insatiable sound and unity and love that comes with believers is now fragmented. And in the book of Acts, you'll read it, they had it in spades. And there's something astoundingly beautiful. And I appeal as a close to my brothers and sisters, let's all remain Let's, let's, let's know that our devotion matters. Our personal devotion matters to our united purpose. Don't get consumed with your old thing. You're like, I need to beat this for the church of Jesus Christ. I need to beat it for my brothers and sisters. I need to get back in the game to help build a strong body for whom? For whom? For them who have not yet came so that they would be protected and loved so that they would not be swayed by the enemy. John 10.10 10 says, Therefore the thief does not come except to steal, to kill and destroy. But you have no got that, brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we've got the second part. But I came. That you would have life and more abundantly. And then he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives life to his sheep. And you know what? None can take us out of his grasp. So I appeal that as we close it, that none of us would ever be snatched. And this morning you may have been distracted or confused or maybe you needed this time of getting back into harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The, 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 what we're joined by, by is our lovely Christ, our lovely the Word, our lovely people. I love you saving souls. I love you the word. No what's going on in the world, the world, but the love of the word and the love of coming together and I long to meet together again. And we'll be careful about it. And we understand it may take time here in this country and we're okay with that. But we can still be together in one spirit and one heart, even if we're not in the same house. And maybe this morning you need to think, I need to get realigned and maybe the Lord's speaking to you and saying, through his word that I need to be in one spirit and one body. I'm, I've been looking at rubble a lot. I've been distracted. I've been confused. I'm, the, 
the gaps that were getting filled is opened again and I've allowed a flow of negativity or a, a flow of something not so good getting in and I'm no part of this Hamath and Madonna. I'm, I'm feeling outside here. Maybe in the past week or few days or weeks, I don't know, but maybe you've stopped doing what your Christian values should be doing. Like praying, reading, staying connected to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you haven't been studying the Word or listening to your messages. Maybe you've not been part of the Ephesians study or whatever. Maybe you've not been part of that at all. Maybe you were at first, and, but you've been sidetracked with the enemy tactic to create confusion that, oh, I just can't see it far enough today. Maybe you've allowed your other voices to speak to you that have weakened your faith and starting to isolate you and second guess the Hamath and Madonna, the, the true unity and love that you truly have with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe there are other voices creating another voice. Whatever that is, I think we need to shake that dust off and get some singleness of mind back and some serious devotion back into your life this morning. Let's devote yourself again this week to Christ his ways and his plans. Let's unite as a church that the sound is of love and of harmony and unison. Know that we've got a mutual complaint, but we've got a mutual love. We can have a mutual complaint, but that doesn't help. We need a mutual love and devotion. Let's be of one accord. Because when believers have that, I promise you, as you will read in the book of Acts, the church like that, is unshakable. It is jaw-dropping. It is astoundingly beautiful. We've got to pray, but as I do, I just want to say that to all my friend, family and brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing greater than when we have this Hamath Madon, this unity in body and spirit that we've never been able to get from the world in its ways, no matter what. And maybe your peace is gone, your maybe that's left you this week. Maybe you're younger in your faith and you've got mature people in their faith and you think, well, I don't know if I'm part of that, trust me. You don't need to know everything. You just need to know that you've been a believer and part of the body. You're part of that harmonious sound that makes an impenetrable unity of the church of Jesus Christ. There is nothing like it. Next week, the Holy Spirit will come. We've got it. So we've got it. But to the to these people who had this Amathema done, and this will be the greatest opener you've ever heard. Because with that unity, that singleness of purpose, that devotion, and with Christ in them, there's nothing like the church of Jesus Christ. Is it worth living for? I think it's worth dying for. And it's the only thing that's really, really worth talking about. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Hope United. You can stay connected with us through our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages.